Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Amelia Hepworth. Welcome to the podcast, Amelia. Hi, thank you. I am in our recording studio, which is our front room of our home in Utah, and Amelia is calling in from Kansas City, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri. Which one? Kansas City, Kansas. All right, let's get you in the right state. So you're in Kansas, <laughs> and we've it's summertime, and we've looked at the weather reports, and it's safe there, and it's safe here. I always think of Kansas and tornadoes, and I know there's not a tornado every day where you live, but I think of that. Anyway, yeah. um, Amelia is someone I've met at a North Star conference here in Salt Lake City. We've interacted on social media. I've met her husband, Greg, also at North Star. And just a little bit of background, um, Amelia, you're 22? Yep. yep. 22 and has been married two months. Amelia's active LDS, grew up in an active LDS home. And there's kind of two unique parts about Amelia's story that she's had the courage to share in this podcast. One is um, her sexuality. She's bisexual. She's married to a man. And so we'll talk about navigating that road and talking about that during the engage the dating process. And we'll also talk ab about Amelia having an eating disorder and how she navigated that and the treatment she received and how that actually helped her become fully active in the church and, or maybe in a different way, a full testimony of the church. And I haven't heard that story. We're just, I know enough about Amelia's story. So we'll be hearing this all together, our listeners at the same time, but anything you'd like to correct that I said, Amelia? No, that's all spot on. And I don't know if I said the spelling of your name. It's so everybody can visualize Amelia, A-M-E-L-I-A. -E so yep. tell us um, tell us your family situation when you grew up. How many brothers and sisters you had and were you an active LDS family and two parents in the home? Yep, active LDS family. I am the second oldest of the six kids. I have an older brother two younger brothers and two younger sisters. And we range in age from 23 to five years old. Wow. Big range. So yeah, we've got all over the place. And um, what were you into in high school? Were you into sports? Were you into academics, uh, arts? I was, I, so my, my siblings and I um, have all been homeschooled. That's awesome. That's and great. so, um, I was, my high school years, I was very quiet, um, but I was into art a lot. I did a lot of artwork, painting, sketching, and I love to read. And tell us about homeschooling, because I'm not too familiar. Our, our children have not been homeschooled, but I recognize that's a choice some families make with very good outcomes for their kids. So talk about homeschooling and why your parents chose um, that. One of the reasons my family chose it is just because we moved around so often. Um, I think I went to four or five different elementary schools before fourth grade, which is when my parents decided to homeschool. Um, but we were just moving around so often that it seemed like it would be an easier um, option than constantly switching schools. Um, but in addition to that, all of the schools were at different academic levels and it was getting difficult for us to either, we were either too far ahead or too behind. And it, we just decided, my parents just decided it would be easier. We'd have a healthier environment um, growing or yeah, homeschooling. Um, and, you know, not having to jump around all the time, switch schools constantly that's, and that's being more great. family centered. And it sounds like your mom did most of that education. Yeah, yep. Tell us your mom's first name. My mom's first name is Tanya. Tanya, way to go, Tanya, if you're listening for all the work you've done as a parent and a teacher and, and many other things. Talk about what kind of came first, your awareness of your sexuality or having an eating disorder? Um, my eating disorder came first. So tell us about um, that, When what age and kind of that that journey? 
I was about 18 or 19 when I moved from Indiana to Kansas. And I think just with a lot of change in my life, I needed some sort of stability. Um, And I can't pinpoint an exact month or probably even like a three-month period for when it started. Um, it's, It's kind of a slow burn at the beginning. Don't really notice that it's happening. Um, but I remember being about 19 years old and, and my aunt had pulled me aside and asked me if I was eating enough. Um, I had gotten lots of comments about, um, you know, oh, you're losing a lot of weight or you, you look like you've lost weight. Um, but it wasn't, it took a while for it to really sink in for me that that it was a problem that I needed to get help for. Um, I was, it was probably another year after I started realizing the issue that I, that it, my eating disorder was starting to become detrimental and it was starting to affect my daily life. Um, and there were things that I was obsessively counting calories and restricting calories on my intake because for that time in my life, it was the only sort of sense of control that I could find. Um, A common misconception about eating disorders is that it's like, it's all about body image or it's all about weight or food, but it's a a mental illness. Um, And for me, it, I had a lot of anxiety over things in my life that I couldn't control. And so my eating disorder was something that I could control. Um, I started exercising obsessively. And um, I think the first time I kind of realized how bad it got was I had just eaten something for lunch, a very small lunch, um, not enough to, to sustain me. And then after I finished, I just felt this urge that I needed to get up and I needed to go running. And I didn't want to go running. My, my myself, Amelia, didn't want to go running, but this eating disorder part of my brain wanted me to go running. And so I remember going running on the streets and just crying the whole time I ran because I didn't want to be running, but I felt like I I didn't have a choice in the matter. Eating disorder had kind of, ha- it, it took a hold of me and, and it wouldn't let go. Wow. You're doing a really good job of talking kind of vulnerably about this. And it's, it's helpful for me. I haven't had a really talk to anybody about this subject. So great job. I'm just talking Thank about you. It, understanding it takes courage. Um, so um, it's interesting, a couple of things you said that are interesting. One is that it's, it's hard now to go back and pinpoint exactly. It sounds like a gradual thing. Um, Very. And so it's not like, and I think that's one thing I picked up from what you said so far. The other thing I've picked up that you've said so far that's interesting for me is it's not about body image. It's not about losing weight per se. It's about control. And there are so many things in our life we don't have control over. And maybe younger people have less than older people. And so it's interesting you connected the dots that this is maybe not about body image. It's about I need to control something. And there's probably something hardwired into us that we need that. When did you, how did you figure that out? Did you have to go to therapy to understand sort of, I call it the bottom of the iceberg. So sometimes I use this analogy the top of the iceberg is the behavior we're seeing. And sometimes pornography is the behavior. I don't want to compare an eating disorder to pornography, so sorry about that. But pornography no, is sometimes okay. something above the iceberg that we're trying to, somebody's trying to deal with that often to get at the bottom of the iceberg is a way to sort of solve that long term versus it's sort of like hacking off the top of the weeds without dealing with the roots and sort of short term 
solutions or white knuckling it if you've got a pornography challenge sometimes don't solve the problem long term. So how did you kind of understand the core of this? Did you need clinical help or did you learn that on your own? It wasn't until I went into inpatient treatment um, almost a year later that I started learning all about this and I kind of realized how my brain was functioning and what was going on. Um, I mean, I knew something was wrong. I knew just enough, especially for my aunt, who, whose sister had an eating disorder. She had come to me many times with her concerns. Um, and so I kind of had a grasp on that might be what it is, but I don't know enough about it to, you know, at the time I didn't know enough to say this is exactly what it is or this is not what it is. Why did you why um, but, did you do inpatient? Was that something that was um you chose to do or or is it something other people in your life really encourage you to do or a combination? It was I think it was more encouraged from other people. I got into a state where um physically I couldn't do it on my own. My body had become very malnourished and very weak. Um and I just needed some very intensive medical and mental care to get me back up on my feet. So it was a very difficult decision um, because it involved going from Kansas City to Utah and staying in a treatment facility like a hospital out there for three months. Wow. And it was very nerve-wracking for me, leaving all my friends behind and stepping out into the unknown, you know? Talk about, is eating disorder an umbrella term for, um, like, bulimia and, I can't even, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, Anna, Anna, Anna I can't even say it. Help us, help me say Anorexia. It. Anorexia, is that Yeah. It? And are there other um, sort of, um, diagnosis, if I'm using the right vocabulary, under the umbrella term of eating disorder? Yes, there are many. So I was diagnosed with anorexia, um, and then there's bulimia, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, um, and otherwise specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, so there, and then there's, each of those have some different categories beneath them too. There's Diabulimia, which is an eating disorder specific to people with diabetes. Um, there's a lot more than even I realized there was. Wow. Um, yeah. Talk about so, avoidance. What was that one you said? Avoidance something. Avoidant restrictive food intake disorder um, is an eating disorder that... Um, where you just avoid and don't eat certain categories of food based on either texture or flavor. So it's common in um, people with autism who have sensory issues and can't deal with certain textures or flavors, um, but it becomes detrimental to the point of interfering with, with their nutrition and functioning. So... Did you know you had anorexia before you went to in treatment? Yes. Did you I knew did you self-diagnose yourself or did that happen in Kansas City through clinical people? It happened in Kansas City through um a dietitian that specialized in eating disorders and through a physician. And what take us back to that day was that painful to get a diagnosis or was it helpful to kind of know what you were dealing with and then how to solve it, or both? I think it was definitely both. Part of me was very relieved that there was like, okay, so now I can find an actual solution because I, there's an actual problem. But another part of me was very scared because, oh, this is actually a problem. You know, I can't just ignore this anymore. It's not going to go away on its own. Um this is something I need to get help for. That's that was kind of scary. And talk about, do you still consider yourself having an eating disorder or and I, still consider yourself um, 
working with anorexia or tell us where you are. I consider myself in recovery from an eating disorder. I'm currently in recovery. I'm recovering. Um, and I have been for the last year and a half, and I probably will be for a long time to come. You know, it's not something that's easy or overnight or um, quick in any means. And, you know, kind of, it's not linear. It, you know, good days, bad days, steps forward, steps back. But I do consider myself in recovery, and I do not consider myself to currently have an eating disorder at this time. You know, my impression is to give you a big hug for what you've accomplished. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know your road, but as I'm listening to it and I'm thinking about it, my impression that comes to mind is you have accomplished something heroic. And you may not like hearing that term applied to you, but I've known people we've lost from eating disorders that have died, and you know that. And I don't yeah. consider them weak. I consider them really strong people that got a disease. I think you even said it's a mental illness. And, yeah. Yeah. and people die from mental illnesses, and, and it takes a lot of courage and therapy and, you know, other things to overcome. And I think it's really, and I probably underestimate how hard your road is and how hard it is to get off that road. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think if you told me you had pancreatic cancer, um, I would, I don't have pancreatic cancer, but I would probably have a better understanding of how difficult that road is and how hard it is to make it in recovery. So on behalf of all our listeners, Amelia, it's really cool what you've, what you're accomplishing. Thank Congratulations. Thank you so much. Tell our listeners how you got onto the road of recovery. What, what, what happened to get you where you are now? Um, so the story I told earlier about crying while I was running because I didn't want to be crying, it kind of started around that time. And I think that might have been the first day where I just, I didn't know how to stop. Like my, I, I wanted to stop, but I felt like I couldn't. Um, and it was around that time that I started thinking, like, maybe um, maybe this will just get better. Maybe I need to pray harder. Maybe I need to read my scriptures more. And I can, like, maybe I can get this under control. Because I knew something was up. I wasn't sure what it was. But I was like, maybe I can get whatever this is under control if I just read my scriptures and pray harder, which, as we know, is not how mental illness works. Um, but I remember praying, and for the first, it was it's probably like the first time ever, maybe, that I actually started to pray and read my scriptures with real, like, with real intent, because I wanted to, and because... You know, it wasn't a chore um, and because I thought it would help whatever this problem was to go away. And so I started reading my scriptures and praying. And I remember one specific day um, I had I'd gotten this prompting in the morning and it was a Monday and the temples are closed on Mondays. But I had gotten this prompting like, we should go to the temple this week. And I was like, OK, you know, I'll, I'll pin that for a later day this week. And that night we had a, a singles activity um, and it was like a picnic. We were all outside and I remember getting ready to leave the singles activity at 10.30 p.m. on a Monday night and getting in my car and I got this very distinct prompting that just said, go to the temple now. Um, and I was very confused because I was like, it's Monday, the temple's not open. And also it's 10 o'clock at night. It's definitely not open. <laughs> not sure why I'm supposed to go to the temple, but in that same prompting, go to the temple. And so I, I, I like pulled up my GPS and put it in the temple. And as I drove, I was like, all right, Heavenly Father, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now, but I know that going to the temple is not a bad prompting. And so I'm going to trust you on this. Um, so I drove to the temple, um, got to the temple, and I said another prayer. 
when I pulled in. I said, all right, Heavenly Father, I'm here. I still don't know why I'm here, but it helped me to figure out why I'm here, I guess. <laughs> I was just very confused, but also like I'm willing to listen. So I had a notebook on the seat next to me in the car. And I pulled it out, and I love to write. I love to journal. And so I pulled it out, grabbed a pencil, and it was a pretty warm night. So I got out of my car and just kind of walked up to the gate. And I sat down on the ground, and I said another prayer. And I said, all right, Heavenly Father, I'm here. I'm, re I'm ready to listen. I don't know why you told me to come here, but I'm just going to write down anything that comes to my mind. That's that's how I feel like I receive revelation best is, is when I start writing down, things come to my mind more. Um, and so I still have the journal entry from that day. Um, is it okay if I read that? That'd be awesome. Okay. Um, my journal entry says, I got, I got up today with the idea of going to the temple grounds. On my way home from FAT at the Visitor's Center, I had the very strong impression to turn around and drive to the temple. I put church music on the way, got to the temple, and said a prayer. Everything else I write down now will be thoughts I have while I'm here. Um, I wrote down, I should probably start reading the Book of Mormon better. I should prepare to get my endowments at the temple. Study the atonement to better access its power. Remember that my body is a temple. And so I wrote that, that line, and then I just kind of looked up at the temple for a while. And then I just had this, I started writing, and the best way I can describe it is that words were coming to me faster than I can write. My handwriting on this paper is difficult to read and very messy, but I was, it was very, the revelation was coming very quickly, and it had a huge impact. And it says, um, Remember that my body is a temple. Learn to see and treat it as such. Temples are also different, but they are also absolutely beautiful. The thought, time, effort, and care that goes into building a temple, furnishing the inside, and maintaining its grounds is monumental. Heavenly Father put a similar, if not more extensive, amount of time, effort, and care into making me. With all the furnishings on the inside, my art skills, being good with kids, gratitude, to the temple itself, my body, to the grounds, the environment, the people in my life. He planned it so meticulously. No one, no one would ever want to destroy a temple. I would never want to destroy a temple. So why am I destroying my body? When a temple needs maintenance or has been destroyed, over time it gets rebuilt. With the skilled, careful hands of professionals, we cannot pray and expect a temple to rebuild itself. It doesn't matter how many people are praying, Without the help of professionals, it cannot be rebuilt. Similarly, I cannot pray to stop my eating disorder. It doesn't matter how many people I have praying for me. Without the actual help and care of professionals, I cannot rebuild myself. Like the temple, included in those professionals must be the one who designed me to begin with. He needs to be there through every step. He will soothe and comfort and provide a watchful guiding eye. If I ask, he will guide the professionals to know how to help rebuild me. My body is a temple, a gift from God that can do so much. I would never gut a temple of all of its furnishings and start chiseling away at the outside. So maybe I need to stop chiseling away at me. Wow. Um, that is just like and, pure personal revelation. I've never heard anything quite to, I've heard the concept, you know, our body is a temple, but I've never gone where you did, Amelia. Um, that is really powerful. That is just pure personal revelation. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. And I love yeah. your conclusion that you have to, just like the temple needs professionals to maintenance, um, you, we each need professionals in our lives at times to help us. And that's not a sign of weakness. That's just a sign of understanding how to move forward. Yeah. And so that. That kind of kick-started me deciding to seek help was that that moment outside of the temple. Um, it would be about 10 more months bef after that before I would actually go into treatment and 
you know, start getting the actual help, but that planted the seed. Um, not only for, for my recovery, for my eating disorder, but also definitely for my testimony. I think that was one of the first times I can recall receiving revelation that even as I was receiving it, I knew what it was. And I was like, I was very stunned. Um, and I felt the spirit so strongly. Yeah, that is a testimony building experience. I love the way you acted on your impression. I love the way we don't have to be in the temple to receive personal revelation. Um, and I love you acting on that impression to go there and then receive what you received. I love that. I think we learn about how God talks to us in different ways. God, and I love that you know that somehow writing sort of increases the channel between you and God. And then you have a record like you, you have, which reminds you of the personal revelation you received. So that's pretty cool. Thank you. Talk about treatment and what, if you want to share the clinical sort of expertise of others that helped you, what, what, what happened in treatment that helped? Um, so I started treatment in the middle of January, 2018. And I was flown out to Utah, and it's a, um, it's a treatment facility that specializes in eating disorders in um, Orem called Center for Change. Um, and I first went, when I first got out there, I was an inpatient, which is the highest level of medical stabilization. And your day pretty much consists of doctor's appointments, therapy appointments, eating, and a little bit of free time. Um, it's a very structured environment with a lot of rules, but the rules are all kind of in place to, to make sure that, um, that the eating disorder doesn't have any power, um, that you aren't able to act on any of your eating disorder um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Urges. Urges, yeah. So it would be like uh, uh, the urge to exercise or the urge to, you know, throw up the food you eat or something like that. It, it, there, a lot of the strict rules are in place to prevent that from happening. But it is a very big um, shock to go there. And, and if the eating disorder is um, sort of about having control over something, you have less control, sort of this short-term step backwards, I don't know, to be able to make multiple steps forward. I don't know if that's true, but that would be... That, that's pretty accurate. Um, you pretty much surrender all control while you're there. Um, and it's extremely difficult. Um, I remember the, the one of the hardest parts was the food structure. You have breakfast, a morning snack, lunch, an afternoon snack, dinner, and an evening snack. And all of the girls there, you know, you go to the dining hall, you're each given um, a tray with your food on it, and you have to eat everything that's on your plate within a certain amount of time um, just to kind of the food is, is a very tip of the iceberg thing, like you mentioned, but it's also a big thing um, because until your body and mind are, are well-nourished again, it's hard to work on the mental aspect of it with a malnourished brain. With a malnourished brain. I like that. Tell us so, more about then what, you know, now you're in this really regimented thing that necessarily it's the beginning of solving the problem or getting you to recovery, what kind of then happened? Um, my, well, I remember going, my initial reaction was to kind of push back. I'm not a huge authority person. And so my initial reaction was to like, to get mad at, at the staff. But I remember something my therapist said that kind of changed gears for me. And he said, get mad at your eating disorder. Um, that's Which cool. was kind of odd to hear, but at the same time, if I got mad, like my eating disorder had taken, you know, relationships. It had taken, it kind of sucked the joy out of life. Um, 
And when I kind of realized everything that it had taken from me, I had a moment to just kind of reflect and I'm here so that I can get all that back. And while it does feel like a step back, I know in the long run, it's all going to be worth it. Um, so there was, um, I, I think on inpatient, I had therapy four times a week. Um, and it was, you have therapy one-on-one, -on -one, you have group therapy, you have music therapy, you have art therapy, um, you have different groups to learn skills. I mean, it's like classes all day long. <laughs> um, wow. But yes, it was. And then you got some free time a couple times during the day, but it was all therapy classes. Um for the most part, and I was really expecting to find it very dull and boring, but I enjoyed it. Wow. I learned so much about me and so much about other people, about how to have healthy relationships with other people. Um, and while I wouldn't ever want to go back, I'm very grateful for what I learned there, and I'm very grateful that I got the chance to go. How long? Um, how long were you there in inpatient? So there are three different levels in the treatment center. There's inpatient, which is the most medically stable, and I was there for two weeks. And then residential is the next one, um, and it's where you live there, just with a little less um, medical watch over. And I was there for eight and a half weeks. Um, and then there's a day program where I would live outside of the hospital and just go for 10 hours a day. And I was there for six weeks. Wow. And is that about what you expected when you started or did, and could it have gone longer or shorter? Or was it based on you were just, you knew they were there for a certain time and it'd be the best you could do, or did they change the time based on how you're doing? They changed the time. It's, very individualized to each patient, although sometimes insurance does like to cut in and kick yeah. people out early. Well, it wasn't a concern of mine, though. So I was there as, and you know, it was as I progressed. Um, they weren't going to kick me out before I was ready. Just going to kind of see how I how I was doing and and determine the time based off of that. And. When you left, did you feel like, yeah, I'm in recovery? Did everybody agree, or was it still you had to do work on your own even after you were done to sort of get you in recovery? I knew I still had a lot of work to do on my own. I was really scared when I left because, you know, you've kind of been in this place for several months where you're kind of sheltered. You have therapists at your every call you have people support people around you constantly um you're just in a very good environment to recover and then, then you kind of get thrown back out into your old life and you have to have to do this by yourself you know you have to come up with your own eating schedule you have to make your own meals now you you don't have all these people around you supporting you like you did um and so I was really scared when I left. I know coming back out to Kansas, I would still have a therapist out here that I would see once a week, as well as a dietitian that I would see once a week. Um, but it was very, very scary. I knew a lot of my friends out here in Kansas had moved while I was gone. And so my main support people that I had had before, I didn't have. And I felt very, very alone. That's really and it was just very, it was a start, a fresh start, but a scary fresh start. Did you do okay, or did you have like relapses and have to kind of pick yourself up again and make, was it like one step forward and two steps back, or were you okay? Absolutely. It was, so it's not like a Absolutely. linear. Absolutely. It's not like a linear experience. I it came back. And uh, the first couple weeks I was back, I thought for sure that I was going to have to go back to the hospital because I was doing so poorly. I was struggling so much. 
And then my therapist was like, this is totally normal um, for you to be struggling right after you got out. This is new to you. Um, and then I kind of picked myself up a couple weeks and I was doing good. And since then, lapses and relapses have been farther and farther between, but there are still some times that I mess up. Um, and it's still not easy every day. Is there a difference between lapsed and relapsed in this world? Um, a lapse, I don't know. For me, a, I refer to a lapse as like a shorter term, a little less significant. Um, maybe for me that means skipping lunch or over-exercising when I shouldn't have, whereas a relapse is several days and weeks of that that turn into like a bigger ditch that I've dug myself into. That's good. I like the difference there. Do you then, um, do, do your therapist say, you know, when you lapse to try to understand the backstory of what happened? Because sometimes the lapsed is back to what was above the iceberg, but it's it's other things that maybe were going on the day or two that triggered the lapse or the relapse. Is there sort of a link there or, or not? Absolutely. I take a look and see, you know, where are my stress levels or my anxiety? I know around the time of my wedding was really hard and I was afraid I was going to relapse just because a lot of the stress of, of a wedding and, and family and wanting to get everything done and wanting it to be good. Um, that was really difficult and I was afraid I was going to relapse because the stress was so high. And so sometimes I have to look back and see, oh, there was looking back and seeing, oh, that was kind of what triggered that helps me plan for future. You know, yeah. if I know a big life events coming up, then I can, I can say that's probably going to, to be difficult on my eating disorder and I should plan accordingly. I really like that. And I, boy, if I, there's clinical people that are going to cringe potentially, but there, I don't want to at all compare this with pornography, please. But when I worked with the men and women in the YSA ward that were working on pornography, we did sort of develop this language of lapse versus relapse. And lapse, I kind of suggested after talking to some clinical people, look at that as a learning experience. Don't Go down the shame road. Don't think you're back to square one. Don't think all is lost and all progress is back to zero. But a lapse, use that as a learning experience. What happened in the case of that? It was, you know, maybe multiple days of not studying their scriptures or exercising. or And so the lapse itself could be understood in the context of several days prior. And use that as a positive experience to understand what was going on so you don't have a relapse. Relapse is sort of multiple like you described, you know, weeks of of poor behavior. So I don't know if that's a good idea to go down that comparison, but I do love the non-shaming of a lapse in either sense, in the sense you're using it as a learning experience, and you're not just sort of saying, oh, crap, I've been an inpatient, and now I'm back to square one. I, I do think that a therapist would say don't do and I think you're smart enough to say, no, I'm not back to square one. Um, I have better tools, and, and I can sort of – get to 40,000 feet, look at myself and understand the context of what's happening here and what you've done with stress. And, and even then prepare for future events like you talked about, how I know that future event is going to potentially trigger me in this area. So how do I manage that? So I think what you've done is really very, very thoughtful. And there's no sin. There's obviously no sin involved in being anorexic. I don't want to infer that. Uh, there's no sin in no. mental illness, so I'm really careful about this light comparison I've made. So I don't want to, um, who knows, you know, that was probably, that's just thoughts that come to my brain, so I'm pretty honest. Talk about. No, I totally see any, where you're coming from with that. Any more you want to talk about um, the eating disorder before we transition to you being bisexual and getting married? Um, I think. One more thing was that while I was, because I felt very alone with this eating disorder, especially near the beginning when I thought this was, I thought this was something I was doing wrong. And if I just was into the gospel more, 
or if I prayed better, read my, read my scriptures better, that this would go away. Um, but I remember going to treatment, of course, in Orem, Utah, and seeing that there are all of these other women and girls that are also member of, members of the church that have this problem. And in every Sunday in the basement music room, um, they would hold a very small sacrament meeting where a local bishop would come and bring the sacrament and prepare a small talk for, you know, 20 less girls. And I remember my first week there um, feeling like, A, it was the most, it was the smallest, but the most spiritual sacrament meeting I had ever attended. Um, just these, you know, this few girls in folding chairs in a hospital basement. Um, but I remember the bishop said something about how this wasn't a sin, you know, this was, this is a mental illness. This is a trial you will face, but it's nothing that came from our own wrongdoing or it's nothing that we caused. Um, and that we were all there at church that day. Um, not only united in our struggle, but united in our belief and our desire to get better. And it was something that just struck me and stuck out a lot. Um, kind of the first time realizing how much it had hit me that I wasn't the only member of the church that struggled with this. Um, and that this isn't me sinning. Yeah, that's, I wish I could just visualize that, you know, folding chair and the bottom of the hospital <laughs> and the honest and vulnerability in what was said there. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, that's one of the powerful things about your story that I'm so glad you're sharing is destigmatizing um, eating disorders. And that, you know, this isn't a sign of weakness. It isn't a sign of unfaithfulness. It isn't a sign of um, any measure of religio religion or religiosity, this is completely separate category. Um, yeah. like, like physical yeah. illnesses, like a broken arm. And, um, yep. and I think as we're maturing in society, we're seeing that. And then for a broken arm, we have, we understand the process to heal your arm, just like, and you haven't done anything wrong to get a broken arm and the process to heal from an eating disorder. And and the destigmatizing of that that's needed so we can talk about that. And uh, it's courageous of you just to share your story because, yeah, we sometimes look at that as a weakness or a moral shortcoming or, and that's where I'm now in hindsight even more nervous about my connect, connect comparison to pornography because pornography is something that is sin-related and something that, you know, needs to be overcome, but not in the same way that a mental illness needs to be overcome. So I want to be really careful with that analogy. So um, that's really cool. And then I think of the quote I read a lot in this podcast that you may have heard if you've been listening. It's the wounded healer. And it's the idea, and this is who you are, a minister's service, and you're a minister now, Amelia, will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which we speak. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So you've been put in a desert through no fault of your own, the desert of eating disorder. Um, you didn't do anything wrong. It's not sin-related, but there you are in the middle of this brutal, barren desert. And you have bravely done everything you know how to do acting on going to the temple and acting on your personal revelation, going into in treatment, meeting with therapists and having the humility say, I need maintenance workers, just like for the inside of the temple experts to help me. And then having yep. the courage to be led out of the desert um, and walk out of the desert, being held up by people that love you and have the expertise to help you. But then to the point of this quote is, and what you're doing in this podcast, and I know you're doing it with other people, is you just are able to give other people hope. And that's what you felt in the bottom of that hospital room was other people kind of in the same desert walking out, and it gives you hope. So I think part of your journey, and maybe one of the reasons you'll be glad you've walked in this desert is your ability to heal and give hope to other people. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, 
I, not too long ago, um, hearing my own word out here in Kansas, a young woman that I'm friends with texted me to say that she was in the hospital. Um, and I went to visit her. I said, is it okay if I come um, and visit you? Is there anything I can bring you? And so I went and visited and we talked for a little bit. And I found out that she was also struggling with an eating disorder. And she was about the same place that I was maybe 18 months ago. Um, and so I got to talk to her and kind of share my experience. And because I've been so open, even in church and stuff, with with my eating disorder, I don't try and hide it. Um, I remember her telling me that um, she's like, the way you talk about it, it just made me feel safe to talk about it with you. And I remember going home from the hospital that night um, and thinking, if this is why it had to happen, then it will be worth it. If it if the only reason I had to have an eating disorder was to help this young woman tonight, then it will be worth it. It just made me, it brought me a lot of peace to be able to serve her in a way that most other people might not have been able to. That's cool. Um, that is, is really cool. And um, I'm just touched by that because I'm thinking when you got that text and if I'd got that text, I would have been nervous about going to the hospital because I wouldn't have known what to say or not say. I probably would have gone, but you go to the hospital and you know exactly, you know that road, you know that desert, you know what to say, not to say, and you've been there. And you can give that person hope. And it does, and so that's cool. And that's maybe one of the reasons I love Elder Holland when he talks about the vessel, the broken vessel talk is yeah. his own journey yeah. with mental health, that we love Elder Holland and we know that he's authentic and real and vulnerable, and it makes us actually love him more. And it's a sign of yep. strength to be vulnerable and talk about our deserts. And I guess not every desert we talk about, um, it's some of that we keep private, but I think we're at, t I think it's helpful when we talk about our roads, because I think it gives other people hope and we connect in a, an authentic way. Talk about, um, and I need to stay at about an hour for this podcast because I'm going to a wedding reception and we're recording this at night in Salt Lake. So we've got about um, 15 or 20 minutes. Talk about when you came to terms that you're bisexual. And and also, I know you recently got married, obviously, to a man. I think we mentioned his name is Greg. So you're not in a same-sex marriage. You're in a straight marriage and you're bisexual. And I've learned those marriages really can and do work. So that's an authentic, real marriage. And I don't worry but talk about you and Greg discussed your sexual orientation in the dating process, which I think is better than sort of discussing it after you get married. And I realize a lot of couples yeah. are married and didn't have the tools to discuss it in the dating. We didn't sort of say you should maybe talk about it while you're dating. So I recognize there's a lot of older couples that are now talking about it. I don't want to be critical of them. I think your generation is just learning to talk about this in the dating process. So that's about 20 questions I just asked you, Amelia. So you can, <laughs> no, that's all you right. can start wherever you um, want to. <laughs> I think I started coming to terms with my sexuality actually while I was in treatment for my eating disorder. I remember talking to my therapist and some other, um, some other staff members and some other girls there. And for the first time, kind of trying to discover, figure out who I was. Um, and I remember coming back to several times, especially as a 12, 13 year old girl where I was, you know, with a clear mind, able to look back and realize, oh, that's kind of, I had a crush on her. I didn't have the words for it at the time. I didn't, you know, bisexual wasn't a, a word that I grew up hearing very often, if ever. Um, but it wasn't until... Um, treatment a little bit after that I finally came to terms with it. Um, and I finally said, you know, this is, this is, I feel like this is right for me. Um, this makes sense. And when, when I came back from treatment, all of my friends had kind of moved out of the area. Um, and I knew Greg and I was going back to the same, same singles ward. And I had known Greg a little bit. We're kind of acquaintances from before I left. 
Um, but I remember my first Sunday back, very nervous. He sat down next to me. Um, and I was like, welcome back. It made me feel really good to have someone, have someone there. Um, that even if we didn't know each other very well, it was still very relieving for me. Um, so he sat next to me during church and institute every week. Um, and we kind of built up this friendship. And I remember around general conference of October, 2018, I was kind of struggling a little bit. Um, and we were talking after, uh, after church, we we're just walking around the, the church building talking. And he asked me, you know, is it okay if I ask why you're struggling with this particular topic? And, and I said, yeah, um, I'm bisexual. It and took a lot of courage just to say that. Out yeah. loud. Wow. And he was like, Oh, okay. He, he took it very calmly. Um, which made me kind of nervous because he's a very quiet man. He doesn't have a lot to say. <laughs> um, or he doesn't speak up much, I guess is a better way to put it. He does have a lot to say. He's just very soft-spoken. And so I didn't know what he was thinking when I said it. Um, it wasn't until later he asked me out on our first date. Um and after we had been dating for a little bit, I asked him and I was like, now, you know, I know I mentioned this before we were dating. You know, I know I mentioned I'm, I'm bisexual. Um, I was like, do you still remember that? Like, are you okay with this? <laughs> do you still remember that part? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally okay with it. He, um, he told me that one of his friends, as well as one of his min mission companions, um, were bisexual and they had a little bit of a little bit of knowledge in the subject matter but that he was totally okay with it um which made me feel better and then i remember in january he was talking to a friend of his on the phone and he was talking to me shortly after he talked to this friend and he's like hey have you ever heard of north star conference and I was like, well, yeah, I think kind of. I have a, a good friend of the family who who's kind of on the direct director's board for that. And so I've heard of it, but I don't really know much about it. He's like, well, my friend is going. It's for, you know, LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And, and I thought it would be really good for you and I to go. He's like, do you want to go? And that stunned me a lot because... I had, while he knew that I was bisexual, I wasn't at that point super comfortable in that water just because I didn't know where he stood. Um, but as soon as he, he mentioned that and suggested that, we planned a trip out to Utah and um, went to North Star Conference, and it was just an amazing experience for both of us. I think one of our favorite classes was um, how to navigate um, inner orientation relationships where we learned, you know, some of the blessings and struggles that come from it. Um, but it really helped. It was, I'm very glad that we, we went when we did and we had that foundation for our marriage before, before, you know, and not after we had been married for some time. That's really cool. And I remember so. meeting you at North Star in the food line, I think. Yeah. You know, as I've stepped in this space and have interviewed people on the LGBTQ spectrum, I recognize that a lot of, you know, maybe some LGBTQ people that identify then, um, and that's their path. I think then others think that that's their path or this is how they do it. And I think the most thoughtful people are saying, this is my path as an LGBTQ person, but don't make me, you know, don't say that, hold me up as an example for everybody else. So I love that, you know, in other words, some bisexual people would say, well, I can't have a healthy marriage if I'm bisexual. Um, and right. I'm somehow diminished in some way 
because um, I'm attracted to both sexes, and I've learned that that's not true. And I've even learned about gay people being married to straight people. That's harder. Um, but often those yeah. marriages have an incredible foundation of trust, communication, because they've had to gone really deep to make that marriage work. And so I've, I, I just recognize it's uh, complicated. And if and the longer I'm in the space, I'd say, Amelia, you and Greg need to work that with Heavenly Father. I wouldn't give you any advice on what to do except to stay close yeah. with Heavenly Father. And it seems like you two have great communication, great trust, and great honesty, which to me are the foundation points of a healthy marriage. And so I just, I and I remember meeting the two of you there, and you're just both full of life, and you could tell how much you loved each other, and it was just a brief conversation, but I'm just so hopeful for your marriage and the beauty of your marriage. And, and we're all little... You know, we all need, I've always felt marriage is one plus one equals three. In other words, I didn't go into my marriage perfected. I needed a spouse to kind of help me grow. And I've always felt it's one plus one equals three, that because I'm married, I'm able to accomplish more than I ever would alone. And I realize some people are alone, and thats I don't want to minimize that experience and make you feel like you're not complete until you're married. But you know, I think some people sort of think I'm going to become perfected and then introduce myself to the dating scene once I've sort of got, I'm at a perfected state. And I, as a YSA bishop, really didn't want the YSAs to do that. I wanted them to date because the process of yeah. dating can help you grow. And the process of falling yeah. in love and getting married helps you grow. So any additional thoughts on any of these topics before we wrap up? Um. Not off the top of my head. I mean, I completely agree with with not needing to be perfect before you find a spouse. It wasn't until I really turned and focused on on myself that I met Greg. And so, um, but I was far from perfect when it happened. Do you look so, at, Do you look at being bisexual as a weakness, or do you look at it as is a, a gift from God that gives you other that is part of who you are? I definitely look at it as that, that's how Heavenly Father made me, and and this is who I am, and I can help others with this. Um, but it's definitely core to me. It's not um, a fault or a failing or a character flaw of any kind. Yeah, and I really agree with that. And I wouldn't draw any parallels, and I know you wouldn't either, between being bisexual and having anorexia. To me, one is a mental illness that needs clinical help to overcome. But sexual orientation, as I've talked to so many, to me is just, I think God created everybody the way they're supposed to be created. And and it's like Elder Holland's choir, where there's tenors and altos and sopranos and the, the harmony that's created by the beautiful diversity. So I would think, I think you're there, but that's why I'm so grateful for your age group is there's less shame and there's less feeling that you're a mistake. And I think there's a feeling that this is who I am and I will be able to accomplish unique and wonderful things to help other people in my life because of my sexual orientation. And it may be that if we did a podcast 10 or 20 or 30 years as you're a parent and a grandparent and a church and serve in the church, you may find that just who you are is allows you to reach and touch and lift so many people. And you may have a sweet, tender experience where you don't really talk about your sexuality, but you're just able to help people. Um, and it's not per se because you're bisexual, but just those increased Christ-like attributes that come into your life. And I'm sure you've probably felt that. So that's some some of my thoughts as I've tried to really understand um, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So any concluding thoughts, Amelia, before we sign off? No. I'm, I mean, I'm just very grateful to to have this opportunity to talk with you and to share these experiences that I haven't really shared publicly much before. So I really hope that that if someone else hears this that needs help, that they'll they'll be willing to reach out. Well, thank you, thank you, Amelia Hepworth. On behalf of all of our you. listeners, I don't know how many listen. I can't quite figure it out. I know it's over about four or 5,000 per episode. 
uh, on behalf of all of us, I think we'd all just like to put our arms around you and say, you are awesome. And thank, thank you, you so for much. your courage to address the mental illness and go through the steps you need to do. That took incredible courage. And to be honest about your sexual orientation and have the courage to talk to Greg. If Greg, if you're listening, I think it's really cool that you invited Amelia out on a date knowing she was bisexual, that that in itself didn't rule her out as a, as a wonderful potential spouse. And I, I think that's really cool because you could just, I probably would have ruled that out 30 years ago when I was dating. I wouldn't have known how that could actually be an asset to our relationship and give us combined ability to serve and come together as a couple and in, in some ways, it's not a complication. It's just a beautiful attribute that's present in your marriage that somehow, Greg, you you have the maturity to see that. And I think that's a great example for all of us. So you two are an awesome couple. And thank you for joining us and our listeners on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>